and welcome to High Heels and Heartache. This is your host, Kendall Ann Combs. On this episode of the podcast, I chat with Dr. Leah Lees, um, who recently wrote an article entitled, Does Social Media Cause Depression? So we really dive in to see, is it possible for social media to be causing depression in people? We talk about it in teenagers. We talk about it in the time of COVID. Um, we really dig into it and have a great conversation. Dr. Lease um, is nicknamed the shameless psychiatrist, and that's because she is an expert in teaching parents how to speak to their kids about dun-dun-dun sex. So after we talk about social media, Dr. Lisa and I get into a little bit about what her new book um, is on, and that book is called No Shame, Real Talk With Your Kids About Sex, Self-Confidence, and Healthy Relationships. So stay tuned, because up next, I have Dr. Leah Lease, double board certified shameless psychiatrist. All right, I'm here with Dr. Leah Lease. Dr. Leah Lease, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. So, you have a name which I think is so cool. You call yourself the shameless psychiatrist. So tell me a little bit about your journey to become the shameless psychiatrist. Oh, thanks for the question. You know, the the name comes from the fact that I'm all about taking shame and blame out of your game and becoming just very proud of who you are. And there's so much shame in our culture around sexuality, around our bodies that we internalize from the moment we're born to, you know, when we become adults. So I was trying to think of something catchy that would sort of explain who I are, who I am, and be friendly to social media and kind of garner attention to my cause. And I came up with the shameless psychiatrist. I think it fits me perfectly. Also, because (laughs) I'm I'm also very bold in life and very shameless and funny. So it's a double entendre. Okay, well, you've come to the right place. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bring it on. I found you because I, I saw this really cool article that you wrote, um, does social media cause depression? So that's why I wanted to have you on because I really wanted you to sort of explain that to us. And not, not everybody is a double board certified medical doctor. (laughs) So some of us don't really know the difference between correlation and causation. So could you kind of jump into that and just tell us how those two things are different? Well, uh, correlation means that when they look at studies, for example, on social media and depression, there is a substantial difference, 13 to 66% higher rate of reported depression on those um, who spent more time on social media. So you were a lot more likely to be depressed. However, that doesn't always mean that social media is causing depression because there are other confounding variables, things that could be related to the fact that you're on social media all the time, like you don't get enough exercise because you're on social media, because your diet is poor, because you don't have time to shop. You know, there are like a bunch of other variables and it's causation would be if they did a double-blind placebo-controlled study where they put every kid 
that, you know, on that watch social media and said, you have to watch it for three hours a day and you're only going to watch it for one hour a day. And we're going to put you in exactly the same home and you're going to eat exactly the same food and you get the exact same amount of exercise. Then you could prove causation, but without, there's no way to do that in, in theory. They can do that in, you know, the vaccine trials, but they can't do it for, for social media use. So we can only prove correlation. However, the correlation is pretty high. So as doctors, we definitely think there is a real risk to that much social media use. Gotcha. So you can't really, because you can't tease out the variable of social media. You can't yeah. necessarily say like, oh, it's definitely causing depression, but mm-hmm. it kind of looks like it is. Yes. We believe that, you know, as a psychiatrist, I believe that, you know, too much screen time is negative for kids, uh, not just social media, but all screen time. And for teenage girls in particular, social media, in my opinion, is linked to a lot of body image and self-esteem issues. It's it's born out in the studies, but also it's what I see, mm-hmm. you know, because they're constantly comparing themselves to everybody else. Yeah, I I don't even know how teenagers do it these days. Like that, that's yeah. so tough. Like it's, it's difficult for me as an adult. I can't imagine. <laughs> and my yeah. frontal lobe is formed fully, hopefully by now. But <laughs> so, right. um, one of the things that you say is that we are, we're lacking some, some different facets um, when we're having virtual interactions that we get when we're having person-to-person interactions. So right. can you go into that a little bit? Like, what do we get from in-person interactions that just aren't there in a social media interaction? Well, you know, teenagers, if we're talking about teenagers, they're like, it's their coming-of-age story. You know, they're learning how to um, interact in the social world. They're forming their first romantic relationships, you know, And this is where, you know, they fall in love. You know, this is the time where there's like little, you know, teenage girls are hanging out together. They all cycle their periods together. Like there is so much going on chemically from our odors, from our sweat, from our pheromones. Like there's so much to romantic love and friendship bonding that is like, you know, mediated by pheromones. And it's not something that we 100% understand the effect of we understand it in rats we understand it in animals more than we understand it in humans but nobody but every and you know any neuroscientist will tell you that there's so much going on there and anybody who's been in love will tell you there's so much going on there you know when you smell your lover it's like whoa you know and um so you know i think they're missing out on the pheromone exchange which i think is critical for social development um and you know they're missing out on you know, the sexual initiation period, like sucking face, you know, that whole like, you know, <laughs> holding hands, arms around each other that, you know, we all got in, you know, our seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade years. And, you know, they're missing out on all of that because they're living virtually. And like that is just not going to replace actual interaction. And I and I think I'm sure that that is a huge reason why kids are struggling to form romantic bonds and the age of sexual initiation has gone up in this country from 16 to 17, which sounds on, on its face value as being like, great. That's so wonderful. Kids are waiting longer, but I don't think it's because they're risk givers. I think it's because they're either too stressed or because they're they're on the screens, you know, (laughs) and not because like genuinely like, you know, 
say, hey, I want to wait, but I have this great boyfriend or like I have a boatload of friends, but I'm just going to wait because it's my values. So, you know, they're actually just delaying maturity. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of not necessarily, you know, for the right reasons. Um, so, you know, I think the screen time is also creating, I think a lot of will create and is creating a lot of problems with committed relationships amongst the millennials because they're, they're watching a lot of online porn. They're, you know, doing a lot of sexting. They're doing a lot of, you know, Tinder and they're not really being gratified, you know, given gratification for connecting with one person in an intimate way. And then they expect at 30 that they're just going to get married and pop out a kid. It's going to be dandy. You know, they've had no practice. (laughs) Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, One thing that I really, really liked in um, your article is you wrote um, these social and emotional reciprocity exchanges between friends and family decrease your feelings of loneliness, make you feel more connected to the people around you and protect against depression. I thought that that was a really interesting way to kind of say it because a lot of times, you know, like we're connected to our friends and family on social media, but it's not the same. So you think about, you know, people that couldn't go, to Thanksgiving or might not be able to go to the holidays to see their, their friends and family. Like we're missing that, that face to face. So other than, you know, pheromones, <laughs> what are we missing kind of with face to face with the people that we love? Well, because you're not going to post bad things on social media, unless you're one of those people who posts about their breakup on social media, which I find really annoying. Most people, you know, are not going to post that kind of stuff or if some, you know, they get a bag right on the test or, you know, that requires real face-to-face contact. And because then it's like, oh, you know, you really get to open up. And then one, you know, one kid will say, oh, my teacher's so hard. The other kid's, yeah, my teacher's hard too. And, oh, I failed this test. Oh, I did. And then it's like, it's this emotional reciprocity exchange that leads to feeling connected, that leads to feeling better. And that's just not going to happen virtually. I mean, it can maybe on FaceTime, but it's still going to, it's still going to be a little bit inhibited. And, um, so, you know, every happiness study, every blue zone study about the happiest people in the world say the same thing. They feel connected within their community. And this is why they live to be a hundred, you know, in, in Okinawa and it's not their diet. It's not their smoking risk. I mean, that's a factor, but the number one reason why they think they live so long is because they feel rooted in their community. They walk out the door every day and they see at least 10 people they know. And that is the most predictive of happiness. And so without that, what we're disconnecting kids from a feeling of belonging and that you could get only from connection to your community, connection to your school, mentors, and family. Got it. So you write, you write in the article about kind of the dopamine in your brain, right? And how it, it lights up. Um, yes. And I know that that's one of the things that makes social media addictive is because when you get a like, it gives you that little dopamine hit. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing that the dopamine hit that you get from like being in person with someone is, is far greater than just when someone likes your post. Oh, yeah. I mean, anybody who has teenagers will tell you that. I mean when you see them, you know, together, 
you know, a bunch of gaggle of teenage girls, they are laughing, going crazy, you know, jumping around, you know, like they're on fire with dopamine. And like, you know, even boys, there can be a little more, you know, the, I call it the autism of teenage boys, you know, they can all be a little bit, you know, quiet, you know, they all light up too. when the, you know, they're together playing basketball or playing, even if they're playing videos together, you know, video games together, you know, they're slapping each other, you know, they're laughing, they're being goofy. And like, this is, this is the major dopamine burst. And yeah, you do get it from social media, which is why it's addictive, but it's not the same. I almost feel like it's, um, it's, it's, uh, what's it called? What's the right word? Uh, you know, pirating or taking over or costing our circuitry to, um, to make us happy enough with that, that we don't go seek out real interaction. You know, it's almost like a pirate taking over the ship and social media companies do that on purpose. I mean, social dilemma, I think you saw it like the kid, the cute girl's looking at him and, but instead his phone is binging. And so he goes for his phone instead, even though she's sitting there looking at him longingly, that could have been a a romantic relationship for him. And yet he chose his phone. And that's what I mean. It's like, it's substituting it. And it's like, you know, NutraSweet. It's just not the same. So it would be like having Splenda instead of sugar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, It's just not the same, you know? And they're getting screwed out of like real, they're getting screwed out of the the first love all around. They're getting screwed out of these amazing parties and sleepovers and, you know, these great community building events and contact with mentors. And, you know, instead they're getting, you know, you know, as you say, like Splenda and it's not the same. It's just bittersweet. Mm-hmm. And you did mention blue zones. Can you kind of go into w- what a blue zone is? Sure. I mean, I talk a lot about blue bo- zones in my book, No Shame, Real Talk with Your Kids about sex, self-confidence, and healthy relationships. And I really studied the blue zones. It's it's areas of the world which people live the longest and have the highest ratings on scales of happiness. So there's been researchers have studied these areas and come up with uh, um, correlations because they can't prove causation as to why they're happier. And, um, and it's all incredibly interesting as to why they are happier. Uh, you know, some of it is diet, right? Um, they usually have a, um, uh, a Mediterranean diet, but in Japan, they don't have a Mediterranean diet. They, they just have a diet very high in fish um, actually they all have a low, believe it or not, a low protein, high, um, high fiber, high carbohydrate diet. Actually, really? that's probably, yes, that's probably what that means is they don't eat very much meat. They eat a lot of high fiber vegetables and grains. That's so, so interesting. Mm-hmm, like Japan, you know, a lot, a lot of, uh, rice, a little bit of fish and a lot of vegetables, same with, um, same with, you know, Sardinia and all the other blue zones and, uh, in Greece and in Costa Rica, uh, they don't eat a lot of meat at all. And they don't eat a lot of protein. As a matter of fact, uh, if you look at the new studies on aging, they think high protein diets are actually going to age you in the long run because they take a lot of, um, power for the body to digest. So, you know, they kind of drain your chi. If you think of it like you only get a certain amount of power in your life to spend or money to spend, and it's all in the bank when you're born, you know, 
you have to think about what ways you choose to spend it. And uh, high-protein diets waste a lot of money in the bank. Low-carbohydrate, high-fiber diets, which are very cleansing to the body because they're easy to digest and they take out all the toxins in your body, um, are very easy on the body. So they, they burn less you know, calories, you know, not calories, they burn less energy over time to process. So, you know, what, despite what they might tell you at the gym, it's really <laughs> a very high fiber, very low, pro, not very low, but low protein, you know, small amount of meat, um, and very high in like fish or, but you don't need that much. You know, if you eat meat, if you eat fish or meat only two to three times a week, that's all you need. And you just get your protein from fibrous, vegetables and legumes. Oh my God. My mom is going to be so happy that you're saying this on the show <laughs> because <laughs> she's been preaching that for a long time, but honestly, it's right. just because she really likes carbs. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, when I say carbs, I mean, I don't mean like you just go out there and just eat bread all day long, you know, but yeah, I'm not against bread. But I also feel like bread, when you're going to eat bread, you should see how it's sourced because I believe that bread should be you know, high in fiber. So you should get sourdough or whole grain and you should buy fresh bread and you should freeze it rather than buy packaged bread, which is filled with nitrates. Oh, okay. So we got our nutrition down. We know what we're yeah. going to be like the blue zones. And oh, then- sorry, but I just went into nutrition. Let me talk about that. Okay. <laughs> I love hearing about that. Uh so belong. So one of the things he says is all of the five, like all 263 centenarians they interviewed in these studies belong to a faith-based community. Denomination does not seem to matter. What that means is church, or they are very into like, you know, the Rotary Club, or, you know, it's something to do with faith-based because it, um, if they attend four faith-based services four times a month, it will add four to 14 years on their life. I mean, I'm not religious, but I found that very interesting. That's really interesting. And it's, is it because of the, the feeling of belonging that they're there? And a, and a connection to a higher power. Oh, that's so interesting. It gives their life meaning and like it, they feel like their life has meaning. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, if you're, life's meaning right now is to get likes on your social media posts <laughs> yeah. interact with people it's easy to see how maybe you might not be feeling all of all that great yes and then uh he calls it right tribe the world longest lived people choose or were born into social circles that supported healthy behaviors so okinawans created groups of five friends that committed to each other for life but um you know, social networks are incredibly important. So forming uh, very solid social networks that promote healthy eating and pr- promote healthy lifestyle choices are critical. So you can just think about your teenagers, right? You worry they get in with the wrong crowd. Mm-hmm. Absolutely true. You know, you can have a great teenager with great parents who's raised perfectly right, but they get in with the wrong crowd and all of a sudden they're drug addicts. It's so powerful. So creating a community around your children in which everyone else in the community is healthy and smart and safe, then they're likely to live longer and be healthier. So it's not just having interaction with any Joe Schmo face-to-face, yeah. having interactions with, with people who affect your life in positive ways. Yes, because, you know, it's loneliness is contagious, risky behavior is contagious, social media is contagious, but so is like, you know, academic life. Like if you're of a friend who's really smart, you know, if you have 
I had a boyfriend in college, a straight A student, and I was never a straight A student until I met him. And then all of a sudden I was a straight A student, you know, <laughs> he like ripped <laughs> off on me. None of my yeah. boyfriends were straight A students. I guess that's why I'm in yeah. jail. <laughs> that's probably why I got into medical school. <laughs> that's Thanks, Terry. Funny. Thanks, Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> Maybe he'll listen. (laughs) So my next question is, all right, so we know that there is this very strong correlation between social media and possibly us feeling depressed. So what can we do to make sure that it's not going to be making us depressed? Very good question. Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff we can do, but number one is like limit access. If it's a child then limit their access. Uh, if, if you're an adult, you know, limit your own access to it. Like you can set, you know, screen time monitors on your phones. You can even have it cut you off. <laughs> I mean, I do that to my kids. You can do it to yourself. Um, because it's like everything. It's okay to eat like a piece of cake, but do you want to eat the entire cake? It's definitely time limited, right? Mm-hmm. And the less you do, the less effect it will have. And less addictive you'll become. So that's number one. And if you can't control it, then ask the phone to control it for you. Um, So that's the simplest way. But the other way is like we all get into a flow state when we're working or when we're talking to people and where we're like connecting and we're connecting with our work or we're connecting with our friends. And every time that damn phone bings, it takes us out of a flow state and it burns a lot of psychic energy because it takes you that much longer to then re-plug into wherever you were. So you got to turn off all the alerts on your phone. Like it shouldn't be binging and bonging and banging. You know, you can have the phone ring if it's like, you know, you can set, set special alerts for your kids' texts or, you know, if you're worried about your grandma, you know, that those go through. But like, you know, shut that stuff off your phone, you know? And social media companies use that to manipulate you anyway. So do you really want to be manipulated? No. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I need to turn off the notifications on my Apple Watch. That's the thing yeah. that really gets me because it's like I physically feel it. It's not just like yeah. a bang on my phone. I can feel it. I'm I'm very bad about that. Yeah. Yeah. So turn off all that stuff. And so when you and then I what I do and I really recommend is you compartmentalize that time. So, you know, I I, you know, will do a certain amount of screen time you know, at morning and at like when I, you know, after I eat breakfast or whatever, and then before I, you know, go to bed, not right in bed, but like at night and it's fun and I enjoy it, but like, I don't allow myself to do it all day long because I feel like it would bleed into my entire day. And I also think it's really important to remember that you're the example for your kids. So like, you can't be like, no, you can't use your phone at dinner and then your phone's out at dinner. Like, mm-hmm. you know, have dinner. It's like, where you're like, no one's allowed to have their phone at this meal. Like everybody's turning your phone, you know, and I create like go on vacations, go on, you know, camping trips where there's no reception, you know, and make them just go back to the basic roots and like prioritize that unplugging and connect un, and connecting as a family, prioritize that. And probably um, when you're with your kids, don't be taking perfect pictures that you can put on social media later. <laughs> yeah, I know. I laugh. I just started a TikTok account, shameless psychiatrist, because a lot of psychiatrists are um, doing, you know, so and mental health professor professionals are doing well on TikTok. And so, you know, I'm learning how to use it. And it's hilarious. And my husband's like, don't tell the kids. 
<laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, it's like, cause they're going to be like, what? <laughs> are you going to do dances on TikTok? Cause if you are, I'm definitely going to get an account and follow. I mean, yeah. I mean, like I, I'm going to do not like dances. Like I'm doing like, it's, you'll see like little like mental health dances, so to speak. It's all like, you know, everything I do on social media is like educational content, but, uh, it should be, uh, it should be funny. And TikTok's really fun. I must say like a mall. That's my favorite. <laughs> Don't tell the Chinese. <laughs> and I won't tell your kids either. <laughs> okay. So I just want everyone to hear this from you, a double board certified medical doctor, because you wrote something here that in your article that lots of people know, but I want you to seriously reiterate. So you say that social media media can drive further feelings of isolation because most people present the happy version of their life rather than the real version of their life. Mm -hmm. So can you go into that a little bit about why that might correlate to people feeling depressed? Because it's, it's a cognitive distortion in cognitive behavioral therapy that's called unfair comparisons. Ooh, it's this okay. idea that unfair you fair comparison. I'm learning something new. Excellent. It's a distortion of thought, which means a, a thought that is negative, you know, like looking in the funhouse mirror in which you think that other people have it better or prettier or more successful than you. And it, it kind of makes you feel that way. Like it makes me feel that way when I watch it. And, you know, when I look at it and that, you know, so you're always like, oh, darn, like, you know, oh, why did this person get, you know, is so popular and why am I not getting likes and you're always comparing yourself and you can't just be yourself because you're always trying to make yourself look good and, you know, and, and, and present this like view, which is not really who you are. So then it, when you, when you do get, you know, likes or whatever it is, you feel like it's, they don't even like you for you. And if they knew who you really were, they wouldn't like you. Um, and also because of what I said before about the emotional reciprocity exchanges where you're able to really connect about, your negative feelings and not just present this glossy veneer. And I also think it's important to mention that like, you know how on every magazine, every celebrity is always like Photoshopped, right? And we got so used to seeing celebrities be Photoshopped that we have to kind of apply that same thinking to people because they filter their pictures. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, you know, great. I have a friend who's an Instagram influencer and she has a freaking professional photographer follows me around and yeah, she looks great. But you know, I would look great if I had a professional photographer following me around. <laughs> and you have ten, tens of thousands of filters on you, right? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> I have a filter on my, right now. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the filter on my zoom though. It like takes like 10 years off my life, my age. I'm like, Oh my God, why can't I just walk around with filters? But then I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I'm proud of my, you know, my wrinkles are part of what makes me interesting. So, you know, it's like, I gotta, gotta remember that. And also another thing you should, uh, another wise pearl is that, um, it makes us all as a society, very scared of aging because we now have seen all the celebrities, you know, with all the Botox and all the fillers and they don't have a single wrinkle and they look kind of weird, but they don't look old. Right. And, um, you know, recently I saw Goldie Hawn in, in a Christmas movie and I was like, wow, she looks like kind of like baby faced almost, but strange, but not old. And, 
it's now made us all fear aging because we're like, oh, we should just, we need to stay young forever. Or like we can't wrinkle and we can't sag and because it's just verboten in our culture. And then we have a lot of problems. People just get very depressed, despondent and isolated as a, at, when they get older. And when they're going through the dying process, they do not know how to handle it. And they're never given tools. There's no wisdom around it in our culture. And we've got a lot to learn about that. So, you know, I'm just presenting that side as well. That's very interesting. And again, it just kind of goes back to if you're only seeing celebrities being published with Photoshop, and now you're seeing all of your friends with Instagram filters, it's no wonder you feel kind of bad about yourself. Yeah, exactly. Because there's no way to replicate that in the mirror. I've tried. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so we're going to switch gears for a second, because I really want to talk about your book. So you're really uniquely positioned because, like I said, you're double board certified to treat both children and adults. Mm -hmm. And you've written a book about parenting. So it's called No Shame, Real Talk with Your Kids About Sex, Self-Confidence, and Healthy Relationships. So can you give us some information on your book and, and kind of what it's about? Okay, so I am up, you know, just love children so much. It's been my calling my whole life, but I also love getting some adults in my practice because children are twice the amount of work as adults because you got to speak to them and their parents and their pediatrician and their teacher. And it's like, wow, with the parents, I just got to speak to one person, that's it. Um, so, so, you know, so I, I, you know, I wrote this book because I saw you know, no shame. I saw a lot of problems with the Me Too movement. And the reason why teenage girls and boys were getting sexually abused and assaulted, not every time, but a lot of the reason is because they internalized so much shame about their sexuality when it came to really expressing in a, you know, in a positive way, their boundaries, meaning saying no, but, but really saying no in an eloquent way they couldn't do it because they felt so much shame. They didn't have the language. They didn't have the tools. They didn't even know what they wanted, right? So they got pushed into situations and then things happened. And it wasn't even like they got raped or necessarily assaulted, but it didn't feel good. And it reinforced a lot of you know the negative thoughts around sex and sexuality. And so I was thinking this all stems from shame around really having open conversations with their parents, with their mentors, around sex, because if they had those conversations, it would have never happened. Right. So, you know, I I was like, okay, well, how do we change this? And, you know, I work with kids all the time and I always say like, if you could do the crime, you could do the time. So if they are having sex or they fooled around, I make them talk about everything. I'm like, do you masturbate? Have you had an orgasm? You know, do you and by the time I'm done, they look at me like, whoa, like they just been hit by a truck, but I'm just thinking to myself, why haven't their parents done this? You know, why is it like, they're like, you're the first person who've ever asked me these questions. I'm thinking to myself, you know, how has their parents never asked them any of this stuff? Like they know nothing, zero, zilcha. I had one parent get so mad at me, uh, uh, Irish parent, because I dared to talk to their child about masturbation. The kid was already having sex, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, lady, you are clueless, you know? Um, <laughs> And, you know, I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, you know, let's 
prepare parents to do their jobs. I mean, we parents, we bring them to the dentist, we teach them how to brush their teeth, we teach them how to hold a knife and fork, but we give them zero information on one of the most important things they'll ever do. So it's like, how do I change that? And it's not just about sex ed because anyone could write that book. This is about communication skills. This is about how do you get over your own fear, your own shame, and really be there and be a partner in your child's burgeoning sexuality so they can have a healthy and happy sex life and happy, you know, intimate relationships. That's so interesting because like in growing up in my household, like my mom didn't teach us like, I don't know, cutesy names for like your genitals. Like we call things what they were. Right on mom. Mom, (laughs) what's her name? Her name is Diane. You tell Diane, I said, wonderful work, man. She's ahead of her time. (laughs) Except like when I wanted to have sex as a teenager, I told my mom I needed to go to the gyno to get birth control because I, quote unquote, had cramps. And (laughs) she knew what I was doing and I knew what I was doing, but like we never really discussed it. And I grew up in like a pretty like, you know, open household. We could talk about things. So I think that your book is going to help a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think she should have said, do you, are you going to have sex? Is that why you're getting the pills? And then, you know, I think, I think you would have probably admitted it if she had opened the door, you know, but she didn't ask. And people are like, well, you know, kids should have their privacy. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, in some ways, you know, you don't need to know all every detail of their, you know, life, but like, you know, there's no reason why they can't tell you that they're going to have sex and who they're going to have sex with and where they plan to do it and what kind of contraception they plan to use. That to me is open for, you know, open and honest conversation that you should be having because you want to ensure their safety. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's kind of like the way to think of it, right? It's like, you're trying to make it so that they are safe. If it's something that you're never going to talk about, then God knows who's going to teach them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then I like the European, Northern European, Dutch way of, you know, really approaching sexuality. Um, You know, they really approach it more like intimacy education than sex education. So they talk a lot about crushes. They talk a lot about communication. They talk a lot about, you know, safety. They, They talk about, you know, love and relationships. And I love that about their curriculum. And ours is just, you know, basic safety issues. And that's all they get. Oh, ours is like fear mongering. Like I, yeah, I know, sure. When I had sex, I like I was gonna get chlamydia, syphilis, <laughs> and pregnant every single time. <laughs> I was sure. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, we were terrified. I mean, I was terrified as a teenager of you know, lose you know, uh, sexual initiation and sex. Like I, I literally thought you know, you know, it was just it was really it was hard and scary for me. But it still didn't stop us. <laughs> course is not gonna stop I mean the idea that you're gonna stop a kid from having sex the only thing it does is make it scary so you can't really engage in it fully for a while until you get enough you know confidence in yourself instead of just giving you the confidence to be like I know the risks I'm doing this for my pleasure I'm doing this for me I'm gonna take the sex I want and it's gonna feel amazing you know that's where they should be instead of this like I'm terrified, but I'm going to do it anyway because I'm a teenager and I am like, you know, horny as hell, you know? <laughs> oh, that's so true. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm going to put a link to um, your article and also your book because I think it will be awesome. so helpful for the listeners. Oh, thanks so much. And I had so much fun talking to you and it was great. And, you know, say, say hi to Diane. 
will, Dr. Leah, you, you can come back on the show anytime. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm positive you can come out, have dinner at my mom's house anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Bye. Thanks again, Dr. Leah Lease, for being on the show. Um, if you'd like more information about Dr. Lease, uh, visit the show notes where you can get a link to purchase her book, which is called No Shame, Real Talk with Your Kids About Sex, Self-Confidence, and Healthy Relationships. Um, there's also links there to all of her social media if you'd like to connect with her online. If you are in an unsafe or unhealthy relationship, there is help available. Please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. That number is 1-800-799-SAFE.